This is Ed Linenthal, executive editor of the Journal of American History. During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OEH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. During 2014, we are focusing on total war. We're speaking this morning with Professor Mark M. Smith, who is a Carolina Distinguished Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. Mark is no stranger to the Journal of American History, having served on our editorial board and having served as guest editor for a September 2008 roundtable in the JH, the Senses, that's S-E-N-S-E-S, in American History. Our focus for this OEH Civil War at 150 podcast is Mark's forthcoming book from Oxford University Press in the fall of 2014, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. Mark, my old friend, welcome and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, sir. My pleasure entirely. <laughs> so, Mark, talk uh, a little bit about your previous uh, interesting, provocative work in the history of the census in the U.S., particularly uh, what you see as the promise of such work for students of American history, uh, what led you into this book, and what you see as the promise of a study like this for students of the Civil War and maybe for people thinking about writing about such issues in other wars. Right. Well, these sort of personal genealogies are always quite tricky, aren't they? Um, and trying to identify when you first spotted something or, or started to think about the senses is, is difficult. I, I suspect this this was born really in my first book in a incidental fashion, which was on the history of time consciousness in the American slave South. And part of that conversation was about the, the, the sound of bells and clocks and watches and there's an auditory dimension to time that uh, I didn't really uh, accent too heavily in that book. I was more interested in the political economy of time. But as I uh, left the book and started to work on a couple of other things, most notably the book I did on listening to 19th century America, which was published an age ago now, I think 2001, um, I started to think in a more dedicated fashion about not just what people saw in the past, but how they, they navigated their terrains, their lives, the, the meanings of their existence through sound, how they heard, and the various meanings people attached to noise and silence and sounds. And it was at that point um, that I started to think more carefully about uh, the kind of emerging, um, emerging field of sensory history generally. It really wasn't called that at the time. And as I say, this is 2001, so it's not that long ago. Um, I think it was framed more, more in the, in the, 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 the acoustomology of, of history, um, the sound of history. And it was after that book that I started to branch into the other senses. And as you know, my principal work is on the 19th century American South. And so lots of roads lead back to the, the place and time, um, even though some other roads lead to the other senses. And after that, I, I worked on the history of race and the, the making of race um, in a sensory capacity because it was my increasing conviction that race as an artificial 
and historical construct had to be mediated through not just the eye, um, but through the prejudices that inherited in the, in the nose and the ear and the other the, the other senses. And that book was, um, again, a brief book, and it sort of roamed from the colonial period right through to Brown versus Board. It was a, a long arc, but a, a short book. And the effort was to deploy the senses to understand the, the construction of race. That book was called How Race is Made, correct? That's right, How Race is Made. And it examined the, uh, I think it's the subtitle is um, Slavery, Segregation and the Senses, or something along those lines. And... Of course, you know, working in the 19th century, you know, I, I basically sort of skipped over the pivotal moment of the 19th century, the Civil War. And as I was writing on around the Civil War on a variety of uh, sensory components of race and slavery um, and sectionalism and reconstruction, it became increasingly apparent to me that the Civil War probably warranted a more dedicated examination through through the senses. And I'd been flirting with this for a while, to be honest with you. I, I, I think the first time I gave a paper on the Civil War and the, the, the sensate experience of the war, which was sound, was in Sydney uh, in 2001 at a conference on listening to archives. And then over the years, I sort of added bits here and there. And I just decided that... Um, the evidence for the Civil War, the sensory experience of the Civil War, was so rich that it warranted a, a dedicated exploration. And I was quite surprised that the evidence for smell and taste and touch and sight and sound uh, for the Civil War was so ubiquitous, and it was very sort of low-hanging fruit in a way. Yes. But it hadn't really been excavated um, in a fashion that spoke directly to the, the sensory experience of the war. And certainly some recent books on the war had, had sort of gestured in that direction. And I'm thinking of Drew Faust's book in particular, which talks quite a bit about smell. And there are a couple of others. But really what's very interesting, Ed, is that war itself, which is, in my opinion, um, generally an overwhelming sensory experience, uh, has never really been subject to the analysis of the sensory experience of war. Yeah. There, there are hints embedded um, in some of the great texts of the Civil War, but nothing really sustained. And that could apply to all wars, frankly. There's only one book that I know of that, that attends to one sense in a war, and, and that's Santanu Das's book on touch in the First World War. But there's really nothing that speaks directly or, or, or consistently to the, the sensory experience of war. And so I, I think I came to the war after a great deal of consideration of the sensory experience surrounding the war. And partly that's because the Civil War is a, a vast topic and a very difficult topic, and it requires a kind of a familiarity not just with the social history of the war, but with the military history of the war. And there's a great deal to read and a great deal to absorb. And uh, so that's how I came to, to write this book. In terms of your the second part of your question, you know, what is there to be to be learned from a sensory experience of the Civil War? Well, a great deal. Um, I, I think that if we're trying to really excavate the experience of any episode, but especially war, it is unhelpful to ignore uh, the non-visual experiences of the, of, of the war or that episode. You know, if we think about this in terms of popular culture, you know, 
there is a, a, a great hunger to learn about what the war meant for people who fought it. And that's usually framed through experience, and that's usually articulated through reenactment. And that's why thousands of people every year reenact Gettysburg and a variety of other things um, in an effort to get some sense of the experience. So there's a genuine desire to know what that experience was like. As a historian of the senses, I, I have some hesitation in uh, endorsing too enthusiastically the authenticity of reenactment. And instead, I think the historian can intervene into this, this debate helpfully by looking at the historical sources, the written sources describing what those experiences meant, the sensory experiences meant to the participants at the time. And that's what I've tried to do here, to give a sense of what did it mean to experience the stench of Gettysburg? Mm -hmm. What did it mean to experience touching in a way that was wholly unexpected in, in the context of war? What, 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 what did sight mean? Um, you know, to what extent was, was seeing believing? Did the, did the war rearrange the senses? Was there a revolution in the senses in the Civil War? And I think that the answer was largely yes, um, because it was an unprecedented moment on an unprecedented scale. So I think that historians of the Civil War might learn some, something from this book. Some of what they will read will be familiar to them, but from a different perspective. And then historians of the senses generally, I think, would be well advised to think more carefully about war generally as a as a topic of investigation. I mean, if you think about the number of books that we have on the on the history of the senses, they've been burgeoning in the past decade, not to say that they didn't exist before, and they're on all sorts of topics from all periods. This is genuinely a kind of global, transnational history. Um, but war has been cited in this conversation, and it's only beginning to attract attention now, and I happened to be at the Imperial War Museum in September last year, in which um, there was a conference dedicated to the sensory experience of the First World War, and I was asked to introduce it by looking at um, the Civil War. The similarities were quite remarkable, frankly. So I, I think there's um, fertile ground here, and I, I do want to stress that this book is, is certainly not meant to be definitive. It's meant to open up the conversation rather than close it down, and that's been pretty much my intention with every book I've written on the senses, regardless of the topic. It's designed to court interest, to open up further conversation and research, um, and not parade as the final or ultimate word on the topic. Of course, and and they certainly have. You know, I'm, th I'm thinking, uh, Mark, listening to you, of a, a book that was very important for me, uh, J. Gl Glenn Gray's book, The Warrior's Reflections on Men in Battle. And he has a chapter mm -hmm. called The Enduring Appeals of Battle. And one of them is the appeal of spectacle. And he doesn't deal with all the senses, but he deals with with sight and spectacle in an, in an unusual way. Um, talking, for example, about people on rooftops during World War II bombing of London um, or other cities, that as horrible as this was, there was also an allure, there was an attraction because it was an incredibly powerful spectacle, a manifestation of power. Um, and uh, that's one of the few places, uh, well, I should say one of the few, it's one of the first places I began to think about the senses with, with regard uh, to war. And since you've introduced me to the importance of the census historically, uh, no matter what war we think about, the evidence, it's just everywhere, isn't it? Whether it's people thinking about the jungle in Vietnam as a threat, 
uh, or the expansion of sensory challenges to war, you know, in the oceans, to war in the air, to troglodyte existence in trenches in mm-hmm. um, in World War One. Uh, so, th- th- one would hope that that your kind of template for this not only teaches us something about the Civil War, but invites historians to. Uh, really think about these issues in in other wars, because I would imagine, to use your very good phrase, that there is low-hanging fruit there also, isn't there? I I think that's entirely right. And the limited reading I've done on other wars simply confirms uh, my suspicion that there's lots of low-hanging fruit everywhere. And that's partly because war often, not always, but war is often unprecedented to the society that's experiencing or the societies that are experiencing it. And people therefore note it more often, they write it down, they they record their experiences. So there's a great deal of evidence available to the historian. And, you know, you you find this, I mean, look, it's not hard to find. What I do think is important is that you have some kind of standard in which you're comparing prior experience to wartime experience. Otherwise, you have a very difficult time trying to identify what was novel, what was um, typical, what was outrageous, uh, what was expansive sensorily. And so you, you point to this question of spectacle, which I think is terribly important. But to do that, to, to do it with a degree of authenticity, you have to look at what people thought about sight prior to the war, any war. And in the in the case of the Civil War, I, I focus, no pun intended, on um, First Bull Run, the first major battle first Manassas of the Civil War. And I look at how sight functioned in that battle. Um, but to do so, I have to go back to the antebellum period to show how sight functioned prior to the war. And what's interesting is that you, you know, that I think there was a, a widespread conviction in the antebellum period that seeing was believing, that, that eyes were the couriers of truth, um, that they gave people perspective, that they that they allowed um, for considered judgment. And these were very much enlightenment conceits about the reliability of the eye. And the soldiers who march into First Bull Run carry that belief with them. And as they carry that belief with them, it alters and shapes their behavior in that battle. And yet, of course, battle does enormous injury and violence to the eye. It creates dust. It creates visual confusion. At the beginning of the, the Civil War, you know, there was no blue and grey. You know, these soldiers that, that fought at First Bull Run would wear their militia regiment uniforms. And so you have lots of uh, Union soldiers who are wearing grey. And you have lots of Confederate soldiers who are wearing blue. And this potential for visual confusion was great. And, of course, you know, uh, officers recognized this, 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 this potential con- for confusion Sherman recognized it. Stonewall Jackson recognized it. They developed a variety of strategies and tactics to um, minimize the, the, the visual confusion. Uh, some people wore uh, swaths of cotton around their arm to indicate that they were either Confederate or Union. But the point is that I make in that chapter is that the soldiers who walked into that battle walked in with the conviction that their eyes were telling them the truth. The actual experience of that battle expose the, the, the conceit of that idea, because a, a pivotal moment in that battle, a moment in which 
had Union forces prevailed going up Henry House Hill, they might well have gone on to Richmond, and they might well then have beheaded this, this rebellion before it really started. But they didn't. They, they, they failed to take the hill, and they failed to take the hill because as they were marching up, uh, at the top of the hill appeared a Virginia regiment wearing blue. And they stuttered, and they refused to, to shoot. They weren't sure whether it was friend or foe. And in that very moment of visual confusion, courted by the believer, seeing is believing, they were mown down. And in that process, uh, they had to retreat. So this idea of spectacle of vision conveying truth was, was something that was exposed in this first battle of the Civil War, precisely because vision was so unstable. The war destabilized vision in, in a way. And, and that's, I think, you know, so it's, I think it's very important to preface your discussion with the war by backgrounding it. That's why I think something like James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom is such an essential book because it frames the war in its larger context. And that's why a good half of that book is not about the war at all. It's about the beginning of the build-up of the war. And while I certainly don't dedicate half of my book to that, I'm very sensitive to the importance of context and change over time. Sure, sure. That's a wonderful story about Bull Run. So let me uh, read you now a few things. This is from some of the material you sent me. I think it might be from the introduction. Uh, Whatever else this war was about, liberty and freedom, union and state sovereignty, it was also a war that rearranged the sensory experiences of the participants, soldiers, civilians, women, slaves, sailors, in profound ways. The nation that had prided itself on its civilized control of the senses lost that control. So talk a little bit about that, please, and maybe, uh, if you like, focus on the issue of smell, which was uh, something that you spoke about so compellingly at that Gettysburg conference that we were at together in March of 2016. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that, and again, this has everything to do with the context and background. So Americans are marching into this war, and they're marching into in the context of sensory certainty or assuredness. And for many years, there you know, have been dedicated efforts to stabilize sensory perception and sensory experience on a daily basis. So if you think about um, the attempts to control sound, for example, and I'm not saying they were perfect, or utterly achievable. But there were a sort of noise ordinances, there were a variety of architectural acoustics that people deployed in their homes. In the slave south, slaves were required to speak uh, at a certain time but not make noise at a, another time. So the effort to frame the coordinates of sound in a society were very pronounced, and you could find this in the north and south. And that's pretty much the same with all of the senses. So the idea of smell being controlled was very much on the minds of people in the 1850s and 1840s, so that while there weren't very sophisticated sewage systems, um, smell was being shuttled underground or shuttled away from, from the streets, partly because of the fear of disease, but also to control the idea of, of you know, stench being uncivilized and cleanliness being civilized. And that's also reflected in the way that people washed and improved their own body odor, if you will. And this was not something unique to the United States. This was something that was happening throughout the modernizing 19th century world. So controlling the senses 
protocols of touch, protocols of listening, protocols of sound and smell and sight. All of these things suggested a society that was beginning to try to master their sensory environment. And they believed that mastering their sensory environment was important. I'm arguing that the Civil War represented a kind of atavism, a throwback in which that mastery was undermined and exposed uh, as a fiction, because war unleashed uh, violence on a scale um, with an intensity and for a, a prolonged period of time that had not been witnessed before. And the attempts to control the sensory environment became increasingly difficult and increasingly fruitless. So while I fully recognize and appreciate all of the great deal of work that has talked about the kind of ennobling aspects of the Civil War, this was a war about freedom. This was a war about union. It was a war about the, these higher questions of liberty. It was also a war about devolving savagery, if you will. It was also a war that wasn't ennobling to some of the participants in it. It was also a war about returning almost to a previous age, at least uh, in, in the minds of the people who participated in it. And the way they experienced the war sensorially reminded them that they had not, in fact, mastered their environment, that they were in danger of slipping back to what they imagined to be their barbarous past. And so smell is a good example here. And you find this at Gettysburg in particular. And this is um, what I was speaking on at Gettysburg. And I thought that the comments um, from Steve Berry and, and um, Professor Blight were exceptional, uh, very helpful and uh, reassuring to me since I hadn't really spoken publicly about the topic uh, before. So, you know, these, these folks marched into Gettysburg with these, these convictions about controlling smells and the associated valuation of smells as either being civilized or uncivilized. And by the end of it, that very brutal battle of three days, what's left is uh, the stench of decay, the, the utter fetid quality of death and battle. And we have here an instance in which the technology of death outpaced the technology of burial. They simply could not bury and contain the smells of the dead, men and horses, um, as quickly as they could kill them. And it was fugitive. This, these smells lasted long beyond the time the battle ended. There was no way to control them. They were insistent and transgressive. There is no real way, um, since there are no nose lids, to close off the smell except through just leaving or not breathing. This is a very powerful reminder, I think, to the participants that whatever was achieved at Gettysburg, and there was a great deal achieved, there was also a price. And the price was this dip into barbarism, this, this dip into the past, a past that they imagined um, they had left behind. And it came back with such force and such kind of terror because of the way that event smelled. And, you know, it's not just the smell. I mean, I'm very attentive to the other sensory experiences of Gettysburg, the sounds, the screams, the groans, the awful sights, the tender caresses, the violent lunges. But I'm also very, you know, I do think that that battle was principally about the stench of death and the, 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 the decay of a civilization. And I think Lincoln had to, had to rescue Gettysburg. And I think that's what he did in his address. 
And there were, you know, there's apocryphal evidence, and I've not found any documentation, that he could smell uh, the remnants of the battle even when he gave the address. But certainly it could be smelled uh, for weeks after the event. And it wasn't until many years later that, that Gettysburg actually became civilized through memorializations. In 1912, when uh, the veterans came back to Gettysburg, one of the one of the participants commented that it was very similar in place, but it had been sanitized, and he could no longer smell uh, the death and decay of that day, which raises a really important question, Ed, about the reproducibility of the past and the reenactment of the past. If you're after authenticity, at some point, if you're going to reenact Civil War events, you have to reenact the sensory experience of those events, events because that's what was important to the participants at the time. But I find it very unlikely that anybody would willingly or even be able to reenact and to reproduce the, the olfactory content, meaning, and scope of Gettysburg. And, and as you've said uh, previously, even if you could do that, and it is impossible, even if you could, it's a 21st century nose doing the smelling. That's right. So, so history has happened between then and now, and and what we think of as of of, of smelling or stench might have some vague uh, connection to what people in 1863 defined as smelling or, or stench, but uh, the chances are that technology has intervened so much in between that um, almost our vocabulary is unable to convey the similarity if it if it is in fact objectively similar. Because we have we have redefined what stench, what, what, what stench is, what fetid is, what what malodorous is, and I think that's actually true of all the, the sensory experiences of the war. So we have to be very careful about uh, what we want to achieve through reenactment. And I do note with interest that only certain things are reenacted precisely because the sensory experience of of, of say drowning in a Confederate submarine or uh, undergoing starvation at the Siege of Vicksburg. Nobody recreates those because, A, they're deeply unpleasant, and B, I think there's a quiet recognition that you can't recreate them. You can't reenact them with that degree of authenticity of experience. And and uh, at not just Gettysburg, but certainly Gettysburg as one of these places, it's not just the smell of, of uh, death, is it? It's also hundreds of thousands of men uh, defecating on the battlefield, hundreds of thousands of horses defecating on the battlefield and in the area. So it, it's these overpowering, transgressive smells indicative of degeneration of a civilization that you write so beautifully about Cornelia Hancock and her um, her comments in her diary about uh, about the power of of smell. And let me just read you a little uh, part of this maybe for, to comment for listeners. And this is Cornelia Hancock. Not the presence of the dead bodies themselves, swollen and disfigured as they were and lying in heaps on every side, was as awful to the spectator as that deadly, nauseating atmosphere which robbed the battlefield of its glory, the survivors of their victory, and the wounded of what little chance of life was left to them. So, I mean, here we have a contemporary account um, of someone not at all satisfied with ennobling interpretations of uh, of battle. Yeah, and I, I think Hancock is a fascinating study. I mean, she 
I, I use her experience at Gettysburg as my kind of trellis for that chapter. And I, I think that her language is revealing. I mean, she counterpoints spectator with kind of olfaction. And what she's essentially saying there is, look, it looks gruesome, and it was gruesome, but it doesn't really capture the essence of the event. To capture the essence of Gettysburg, you have to inhale. And then you, refi- you, you find what she perceives to be truth. And, of course, you know, most of what we know about Gettysburg is largely visual because there were photographs taken of dead and decaying bodies. Rather than reject the visual evidence, what I try to do there is marry her olfactory evidence with the visual evidence so that we can take a more expansive view of the photographs and, and begin to engage in a conversation about these photographs suggest the scale of the event, the ferocity of the fighting. But let, let's, let's, let's bring those photographs in conversation with Cornelia Hancock and others who talk not just about the visual, but the olfactory. And once you do that, Ed, I think that you have a much deeper understanding of this event, far more textured and critically far more in tune with what people at the time experienced. And this is fundamentally what I think the dividend of sensory history is it doesn't always necessarily change your understanding of a cause in, in, uh, in, in a moment in time. It can do that, but it doesn't always have to do that. What it does is it gets you to a deeper, more textured understanding of the past. And I think that's ultimately my remit as an historian to kind of convey the multi-textured levels, the many, many ways in which people experience the past on their terms, not so much our terms, but their terms. The sensory history gives you that ability. It gives you that depth. And it, it can be deeply chilling once you add the other senses in. And what you're not really adding the other senses in, what you're doing is simply listening more carefully to the voices at the time and their experience. And, you know, it's very, as I say in the introduction to the book, It didn't require many new sources, if any new sources, for me to write this book. What it required was an attentiveness to the sources themselves and not glide over um, the, the evidence embedded. And I think this is a kind of radar issue in which the historian who's attentive to the sensory experience of the past suddenly finds herself or himself inundated with evidence and there was so much of it this book could have been much much longer um i elected to make it shorter um because i think it's more digestible um but there is so much more to be written about on this topic um just not just from individual battles but uh, events at sea for example as well as on land uh the experience of individuals uh, you know, this is a, a, an invitation to open up the conversation through an attention to language and attention to description. Mm. Mark, do you think that from this project, you will move on to do other uh, studies of the census in war, or are you not sure yet what the next project is? I um, I, I have I have other projects. I mean, and you know me, Ed, I'm all over the place with things. <laughs> And I have other other projects in mind. Um, some of them have to do with with aspects of war. Um, others have to do with the history of violence and the senses, mm. which of course is an extension of war, but it doesn't have to occur within the context of a formal war. 
So, I, you know, I, I doubt very much if I will uh, leave war in the census entirely. Um, but as is my inclination and, and simply perhaps lack of a, a concentration, um, I, I tend to be quite itinerant in my, my topics and sort of roam between centuries. I just finished a book. It was published in... Um, in uh, April with uh, uh, five other authors on the history of um, Hurricane Katrina. And I was the historian in the group in which I, I, I addressed this question of what was the sensory experience of, of, of a hurricane. And I've written on Hurricane Camille too. So natural disasters, I think, invite a conversation about sensory experience. Um, because manifestly it is a sensory experience. A hurricane is a thoroughgoing sensory experience. So I think there's, there, there are many topics. I mean, pretty much I would like to write a sensory biography, for example. Hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there are lots of ways to do it. It's more difficult to do that, but there are ways to speak about the sensory worlds of an individual and the sensory experiences of an individual that might well be uh, relevant. And I tried some of that with Lincoln um, a few years ago in a very brief article, and that might be worth picking up at some point. But I, right now, having just finished this book, I, uh, I'm still thinking about the next big project. Sure, sure. I was reminded as you were talking about, well, it's a book that's been out for a, a while now, but a, a topic that um, I, I engage graduate students with in a seminar called Memory of Catastrophe, Kai Erickson's wonderful book, A New Species of Trouble, and in talking about, for example, radiation sickness, uh, an event uh, uh, you know, like um, Chernobyl, for example, where the senses do not serve you well, where where what what it can't be tasted, it can't be smelled, it can't be seen, it can't be felt uh, until the, the toxins erupt in bodily illness of some kind. So it's interesting when you were talking about violence in the senses, this tremendous challenge that. Uh, a new species of trouble brings when none of the senses register the the danger that's that's out there. I I think that's absolutely fascinating. I, I attended a very interesting seminar uh, at Harvard on this, and it, it was on the limits of the senses. And the example you just gave is a perfect illustration in which the senses are essentially rendered useless which of course is a profound sort of psychological impact because we've become, we're so dependent on them. So what do you do in instances where you can't rely at all on any of them? You know, and, and the, the, the net impact of that, of course, I think is um, subject to research, but the invisibility and the non-olfactory and non-tactile experience has to be uh, plus alongside the, the, the more affirmative sensory experiences. And of course, you know, you, you, you find this in war in particular, um, especially as war modernizes. You know, for example, you can be entirely blind in a submarine in the Second World War um, as long as you can hear through, through radar, um, as long as you can hear through echolocation. Um, so there are all sorts of, I think, instances in which one should be sensitive to the absence of sensory experience. Um, and the example you just gave is a very powerful one. Mm -hmm. Mark, this has been a, f a fascinating conversation, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to bring it to a close, but we, we probably should. 
let me remind listeners that we're talking with Mark M. Smith, who's Carolina Distinguished Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. Mark has served on the editorial board of the Journal of American History and also as the guest editor for a September 2008 roundtable that we did in the journal, The Senses in American History. And we've been talking out of Mark's forthcoming book from Oxford University Press to be published this fall, 2014, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. And I'm sure I am not alone, Mark, among listeners in being very eager and impatient to curl up on a crisp fall evening uh, with, with the book. I can't wait. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Ed. It was my pleasure entirely, and I've enjoyed it. Thank you.